Turn with me now in your Bible back to the book of Acts, and we are going to be starting in chapter 26. So turn to Acts chapter 26. As you are turning there, there's a lot of content to cover today. I hope it will be an encouragement to you. We're going to be focusing again on Saul and his conversion. I'll be reminding us of some of the things Greg taught us and repeating and then building off of the foundation that he laid in this conversion of Saul. You may be familiar with Acts, and if you are, you may know that Paul's conversion is actually told not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Acts. It's in chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26, and that shows you how important his conversion was in early Christianity. The sermon today is really my goal, uh, is that we all have a clearer understanding of how Paul's entire life was changed when he met the Lord Jesus. And I do have three points, but it's going to take some time to work through these. uh, Number one will be, uh, when becoming a Christian, expect, number one, when becoming a Christian, expect, number one, personal transformation, number two, persecution, and number three, a time of preparation. I'll explain what those mean as we go, but when we becoming a Christian, expect number one, personal transformation, number two, persecution, and number three, preparation, a time of preparation in the early years after you come to know the Lord. Now, for that first point, personal transformation, I feel a burden today, more than usual, to try to get us into the mindset of Saul before he met Jesus. And I want to move be, I, I want to try to go as far as I can here to paint a picture of what he might have been thinking and the kind of worldview he was coming from. And I'm going to let his, some of his own words give us a little glimpse into what he was thinking. So in Acts 26, Paul describes his conversion and his time before his conversion like this. Acts 26, verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a what? A Pharisee. Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And he goes on to describe the Damascus conversion. But do you see verse 9? He was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. This is very important. Paul did not think... What he was doing to the Christians was bad, but he just couldn't help himself. It wasn't as though he was, he was just losing his temper, and he knew it was wrong, but sometimes he just sort of lost it on these Christians, and, you know, he knew better, but, he, you know, no, 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 no. Saul thought the right thing to do, the most godly thing to do, the most biblical thing to do was to persecute the followers of Jesus of Nazareth to death. That was the right and godly thing. Now, isn't that, doesn't that sound strange? How do you get into the mindset where killing Christians is considered the right and godly and biblical, he's thinking Old Testament, the biblical thing to do? Flip back to chapter 22 of Acts, where Paul is once again telling his conversion, and we get a few extra details. Each time he tells it, we get a few extra details here and there. You can put them all together. Look at chapter 22 of Acts, verse 3, and Paul again says, I am a Jew 
born in Tarsus in Cilicia, that's a couple over 100 miles north of Jerusalem, but brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem. He was brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being, it's a key word, zealous for God, as you, um, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Now, Paul multiple times refers to his pre-converted life as one of being zealous. The word in Greek for zealous can be translated. We get two English words from the Greek word zealous. We get the word zealous, and we get the word jealous. Those two English words come from the same root word. So, when you read in the Bible, often the word jealous and the word zealous are usually translating the same, oftentimes translating the same word. Now, just get into Saul's mindset. I'm going to take several minutes to try to do this. So, let's start here. We won't turn to all these passages. It would take a long time. People of Israel have left Egypt. They're in the wilderness for the 40 years. And towards the latter part of that time, in Numbers 25, you have this scene where the people are restless. They're tired of the strict ethics that God has given them. They're tired of being in the desert. They're tired of manna. Remember that? They're tired of the manna. And some Moabites show up who are nearby, and they worship false gods. And some of the women, some of the single women of the Moabites come into the camp of Israel, and some of the men, some of them already married, begin to marry and to begin to have relations with these Moabite women. And they begin to worship the false gods of the Moabites. Now, this is not good. Uh, to, To marry someone who does not believe in the Lord God of Israel, and to then follow and practice their divine, their their false divinities, bad. So, remember, God sends a plague against Israel. Thousands begin to die in the wilderness. So, what happens? Moses says, this has got to stop or the plague will not stop. Well, a young Jewish man, brazen, doesn't give a rip that Moses is standing there watching him, gets his new Moabite girlfriend, walks past Moses, goes into the tent to be immoral with her, and there is a descendant there, Phineas. You know Phineas, perhaps? He sees this is happening, and this is wickedness. And if this keeps going, more people will die under God's judgment. The people must, this must stop. This evil must stop. So Phineas picks up a spear. He goes into the tent, catches the couple, if I can be this blunt, in the act, and throws the spear through the back of the man and through the stomach of the woman and kills them in one motion of the spear. Both of them lie dead in the tent. And God stops the plague. And Phineas is commended, and the Lord says, I'm going to make a covenant with Phineas that he will have priests in his family for a long time to come. And you know what, you know what Phineas is called? God says twice, you were very, depending on translation, jealous, zealous, you were zealous. You were zealous for my name, and God commends him. Flash forward. King David has been and gone. Solomon has been and gone. The kingdom has split, northern and southern kingdom, after a kind of civil disagreement. Prophet Elijah rises up. The people of Israel are worshiping the, uh, the false god Baal. 
Baal worship. Remember, there's hundreds of false prophets of Baal, all claiming to be Israelites, but they're worshiping a false god, a pagan god, a Canaanite deity. This cannot be. And Elijah's one of the few left. You know, there's 7,000, a little group, and Elijah, one of the only true prophets around. And he challenges them to that duel. Do you remember the the, the two sacrifices on the mountain? One is covered in water, and the other one is not. And the prophets of Baal are asking for the God to send down lightning or fire to, to burn the sacrifice. And they do it all day long, screaming and cutting themselves. And what happens? Nothing happens. Because remember, Elijah's like, is Baal on a vacation? Is Baal, did he forget that this is the time for him to show up? Is he, Elijah makes fun for a little while, which is holy mockery, holy sarcasm, there is such a thing. And then afterwards, Elijah's, okay, it's been all day, nothing's happened. Why don't y'all douse my sacrifice in water, not once, not twice, I think it was three times, if I remember correctly. They douse it, it's soaking wet, you can't start a fire, there's no manipulation. He can't get back there when no one's looking and get the fire started. He steps back, he says, Yahweh, God of Israel, show right now that you're the one true God. Fire comes from heaven and burns up everything around, and the people fall, and they say, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then Elijah, with the word again, zeal, takes all the prophets of Baal and has them put to death, which in that time and in that covenant was the right thing to do. We are no longer under the old covenant. We are no longer part of the nation state of Israel in that sense. It is a different situation in the new covenant. We don't do that in the new covenant. But at that time, that was the righteous thing to do. And then Elijah gets discouraged because he realizes that people are not going to follow him as he wants. So what does he do? He takes a 40-day trip into the desert, and he ends up at Mount Sinai, and remember the, the still small voice, and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very zealous for the name of God. And he says it twice, I have been very zealous for the name of God. What does zeal look like in the Old Testament? It often looks like this. If the people worship false gods and abandon the covenant with Israel's God, then God will judge the people and that will be bad for everyone. So whatever it takes to stop apostasy, it must be done. That is zeal in those ways. Now, let me flash forward. I don't want to make anyone nervous here. Whenever you mention this event, people always say, where are you going with this? Okay, before I even mention it, I'll just say, I'm about to quote something from the book of 1 Maccabees. Don't run out of the room, okay? I do not think that the book of 1 Maccabees or 2 Maccabees or 3rd or 4th Maccabees, I don't think they're inspired by God. I understand we could talk about that on another day, okay? I don't. But I do think that the book of 1 Maccabees is a generally reliable history of what happened between the Old and New Testament at a specific moment in time. If you've ever read this book, you will know something that happened. So let me try to explain this. Let me keep this narrative thread of zeal. After Elijah and Elisha, centuries go by and God destroys both the northern and southern kingdoms, sends them into exile. And Israel began to learn a lesson, which is the one true God is the God we must worship and we must obey His Torah, His law. Part of that law is temple, ceremonies, sacrifices, including circumcision, days of festivals, etc. Well, after the exile, the people begin to rebuild, and you fast, so just to make sure we're on the same page, 586, southern kingdoms destroyed, the people come back and begin to rebuild in the 400s, you've got Nehemiah, you know, you've got Malachi, they're rebuilding a little bit, and then you kind of have radio silence after 400, and you go 200 years forward, what's been happening? Well, Israel's had been under control of some other empires, but they've largely let Israel do what they want, until... A man, a Syrian king from the north named uh, King Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Epiphanes, he named himself God Manifest. 
Here I am. I am Epiphanes. So he shows up. This is a wicked dude, one of, one of the most horrible people, but in the intertestamental period. And he shows up in Israel and says, I don't care who you say you worship. I don't care what you do. You will abandon your God and you will worship my God. So he goes into the temple, kills a pig in the Holy of Holies, starts sacrificing to Zeus, tells people that they, if they circumcise male children, they'll be put to death. If they keep the Sabbath, they'll be put to death. Enough with this Israel stuff. You're going to follow me and my gods now. And for the first time and the only time between the rebuilding of the temple and the destruction of that next temple with Rome in AD 70, so for centuries. This is the only time that we know of that Israel stopped the daily sacrifice for three years, and the temple was, was, was in disrepair for three years and unusable. And you know what happened? The Maccabean revolt happened. Now, just hang with me here. I do believe this is historical. Here's what happened, and Josephus describes this as well. So, think zeal. Think Phineas. Think Elijah. There's a dad, Mattathias. He has five sons, the middle son is named Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the hammer, and he lived up to his name. He was a hammer, okay? And Ju the dad and Judas say, listen, we've got to do something because this man is telling us to not do what God commanded, and we know when we disobey God, it does not go well. We must be faithful to God. We must be faithful. And so what happened was they started fighting battles against the Syrian armies, and they won in, in unimaginable battles. They should never have won. Judas kept winning and winning and winning. Finally, he was killed in battle. His brother takes over, Jonathan, and he continues. Now, here's what happens. They get freedom again. And for the first time, they're able to purify or rededicate the temple, and they light the candles, and that's Hanukkah, right? They, they, they relight the candles after the dedication, and they celebrate that first Hanukkah in that December uh, in the 160s BC. Now, why do I bring all this up? In fact, I just got to mention real quick before I forget. In, in 1 Maccabees, can I just read, again, this is not Scripture, but this is just a historical account. Listen to how the, it's described. This is the dad. When Mattathias saw that these people were abandoning God, he burned with zeal in his heart. He gave vent to his righteous anger. He ran and killed this, this person who was trying to get them to disobey on the altar. Thus, he burned with zeal for the law just as Phineas did. And then he turns to his sons and says, Phineas, our ancestor, taught us to be deeply zealous. And Elijah, because of the great zeal he had for the law, was taken up to heaven. Now, in that milieu, imagine fast-forwarding 160 years, Saul is born, and this is the world he's growing up in. We must be true to the temple, and we must be true to the Torah, which involves circumcision, animal sacrifice, and all that stuff. And then he finds out that there's a Jewish man from nowhere, Nazareth, who was crucified by the Romans, and Saul knows the Bible. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 says, any man who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. And Paul knows that. So, where was Jesus? Jesus was hung on a tree. You know what that means? Jesus was cursed of God. You know what that means? He can't be the Messiah because anybody who's cursed of God is not blessed of God, right? The anointed one of God will not be cursed of God. So, Saul knows for a fact Jesus is not the Christ. He was hung on a tree, cursed of God. He can't be the Messiah. And now, we're told in Matthew 28 that a, a story was spread amongst the Jews that, that continued for decades that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and preached the lie of His resurrection. So Saul believes the disciples stole the body, they're lying about it, and, they, and he believes Jesus is a complete false Messiah. And then he starts to understand that what they teach, like Stephen said, undermines the physical temple. Remember the Stephen speech? We don't need a temple, we need the Holy Spirit. 
We don't, God doesn't care if you're in Mount Jerusalem. He cares if you have the spirit of truth, right? He's, and he goes, okay, then maybe he's starting to see where this is going with you don't need circumcision. You don't need, you don't need the festivals. You don't need the ceremonial law. Maybe Saul's glimpsing where this is going. And do you see what he's thinking? This is the Antiochus Epiphanes moment again. You've got people apostatizing. They're turning away from Judaism, and they are embracing a false religion. They're following a false Messiah. And so Saul goes, the righteous thing to do is to shut this false movement down immediately. And so he goes to the high priest and says, I need letters of authority to go to Damascus because it's spreading like a wildfire, this Jesus thing. And I'm going to imprison and I'm going to kill Christians all the way there. Now, do you kind of get an idea now where he's coming from? Now, turn with me back to Acts chapter 9. So, looking back to two weeks ago's passage, let me reread the beginning. Acts 9.1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Okay. At this moment, that was the least expected name he would have ever imagined. And then look at verse 9. Led blind into Damascus for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I can only imagine he was doing one thing. Did he know his Old Testament memorized? You know what he did for three days? No eating, no drinking, maybe hardly any sleeping. He was sitting there, and he was running through the Old Testament, and he has a new ending to the story, right? The Old Testament is a story going somewhere, but it doesn't yet have the ending. And so Saul is going, I thought the story was going in direction A. I just met Jesus risen. It broke all his categories. Okay, the Old Testament was actually going to another option, to Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul has to rework his theology, starting with a resurrected Jesus and working backwards to make sense out of his Old Testament. Do you see what he's doing? So, for three days, he's just running through it, running through it, the prophecies, the, the Old Testament historical books, the Psalms. He's running through it, and he, he starts to see Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He starts to see Zechariah, the humble king, coming on a donkey who's pierced. He, he starts seeing these prophecies together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Davidic king says. He's, it's coming together, and suddenly it just hits him. Jesus was cursed of God on a tree. But it wasn't for his sin, it was for the sins of his people. So Paul quotes that verse in Galatians 3.13 and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He had reworked these passages. He goes, oh, Jesus was cursed of God, but for my sins, for the sins of his people, not for his own sins. And God vindicated him, raising him from the dead, proving Jesus' innocence through the resurrection and ascension into heaven. And Saul's life is completely shattered and rebuilt from the ground up in some sense. So one of the things that will happen when we first meet Jesus is that our view of Jesus is going to change. Now listen, maybe you grew up in a great home and a great church, and your theology of Jesus stays the same. What you always knew stays the same. A little illustration I heard a long time ago was this. 
Imagine the frozen lake is like a hard heart of a young child in church, which is what I was for 15 years. Frozen lake, throw stones on it, sun rises, the ice melts, and the stones just drop into place. Some of you, this is how you were converted. You, had a, you were all born with a hard heart, and truth, like those stones, is just thrown on our heart. We're four years old, we're 10 years old, we're just truth, it's just biblical truth, it's just stacking up on our heart, but we're not yet genuinely, our hearts haven't been melted. And then we become born again, and the truth of Jesus just sinks into place, just, just sinks into place. But for others, the view of Jesus actually changes. You may have thought Jesus was just a nice teacher, you may have thought He was evil, you may have thought, I don't know what, but suddenly you see, no, He's Christ, He's, he's, he's the Son of God, he's, he's our Savior. And affections and truth come together, and there is this love for the Lord. So there is a personal transformation, and with it comes a new community of f- believers and friends in Christ. Okay, point number two. So Paul was… Uh, personally transformed, now he's going to experience some persecution. Look with me at the middle of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? I mean, let's be real here. Let's be human beings. If Saul shows up with letters to have you executed and he says, oh, I just became a devout follower of Jesus. You're like, I'm sure you did. Uh, please put those papers away and go somewhere else. So, so of course, I mean, it's, just, it's common sense. You don't just naively be gullible and just accept, okay, of course. I mean, he could have, this could have been, some people said a Trojan horse, you know. I, I, I just, you know, I, I met Jesus on the way here to arrest you. Wow, Paul, that's so coincidentally useful for you. And you come in, and, oh, you know, this is great. Why don't you show me where all the house churches are? Why don't you show me where all the Christians live? Oh, oh, he's a Christian? Oh, really? Okay. And so he's just sitting there making calculations. Okay, I'll arrest all these people. I mean, clearly, you need to be a little skeptical of Saul's conversion at this moment. But he was genuinely a Christian. And so Kevin DeYoung said, he went from making havoc of the church to creating havoc in the synagogue for different reasons. So, he was making havoc of the church in chapter 8, verse 1, and now he's about to flip everything around, and he's making havoc of the Jews who are not following Jesus, saying, have you read Isaiah 53? Have you read these Psalms? Have you seen what this says? And he's showing all these reworkings of the Old Testament he's come to see. He's showing them in the synagogues, and they can't respond to his arguments. They're so strong. Look at um, verse 22. Here's how strong it gets here. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul is just sitting there listing text after text after text saying, don't you see where the story was going? I got it wrong too. But look, Jesus has come and He's a different kind of Messiah than we expected. We expected a violent Messiah. He was not one who came with a sword in His hand, but with nails through His hand. He didn't come wielding a spear. He came receiving a spear through his side. This is a different kind of Messiah, not wearing a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns, a humble Messiah, a shocking Messiah, an unexpected in some ways Messiah. But he says, look, it's in the Old Testament, and I had missed it. Don't you see it? And they could not respond to Paul. I uh, 
just have time to mention this real quickly. If you compare this passage, and I love doing this, to Galatians 1 and 2, you put them together and you can help harmonize. But do you remember Paul's little trip to the, Ara- to the Arabian region? Uh, do you remember this early after his conversion in Galatians 1? Luke leaves it out, but between verses 22 and 23, Paul goes to Arabia. And just to say this concisely, if you bring 2 Corinthians 11.32 into the story, you get a lot of information. Now, I kind of grew up thinking, or I don't know if I was taught this from from anybody or if I just thought this, but I had this idea that Paul went on a three-year hiatus and just sort of meditated for three years in silence and then showed back up on the scene. I think it's not quite that simple. We are told that Paul was preaching in Damascus immediately, and then he left and went to Arabia, which uh, is another kingdom, and it looks like he was preaching the gospel in Arabia to cities there, perhaps the capital, I think it's called Petra, and some other areas perhaps in that area, and then he apparently upset the king. Because the king, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians, got mad at him and traces him back to Damascus, and he's in Damascus again. And both this king of uh, the Nabataean kingdom in Arabia and some of the Jewish non-Christians in Damascus team up to try to get Paul killed. And so, what does Paul do? Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Uh, They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, this is not a fun thought, but it is a true thought. When we become Christians, we should expect some degree of real pushback and persecution in our life, even at times from those we love. Jesus' words, Matthew 10, brother will deliver brother over to death, over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and try to have them, or have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saul found out very quickly that some of those he was closest to in a very short time turned entirely against him. And instead of being friends with Saul, persecuting Christians, they turned against Saul, persecuting him as a Christian. It can be dangerous when becoming a Christian to have naive notions about this. If you do not believe that the world at its core will hate, as Jesus said, the message of Jesus at its core, if I don't believe that when I become a Christian, I may just think everyone's going to love what happened to me. You go home and tell your family, and this has been tragically true of some of our own members, coming to know Christ in the last few years, returning home for Thanksgiving, and sharing with your dad or your mom excited. Here's what happened. I I met Jesus. He's real. He saved me. He forgave me. And instead of excitement coming back across the table, we've seen sometimes mockery, silence, anger, hostility in different cases. I hate that. We all hate that that happens, but we don't want to be naive. Those who genuinely follow Jesus will experience varying degrees of persecution in this life, and we must know that as we embrace Christ. Let, let me go one more here before we get to our last point. Look at verse 26. You'll notice the same pattern of what happened in Damascus will happen again in another city, Jerusalem. Verse 26. And when he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. 
for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, remember the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Just pause here. When you look at Galatians 1, Paul talks about this exact trip, his first trip to Jerusalem as a Christian. It happened a couple years after his conversion, and we're told it only lasted for 15 days. He got to meet Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and he got to be around the Christians and preach, but only 15 days. Now, listen, Saul was such an intense person that the city of Jerusalem could handle Saul for about two weeks, and then his life was in danger. Uh, I remember one pastor said, uh, I think a pastor from London said, um, everywhere Paul went, there were riots. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is true. It makes you wonder, are we really preaching the same message that Paul preached? Paul goes to Jerusalem. He can't last two and a half weeks before his life is in danger, and he's got to get out of there immediately. And if you look, verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Remember there, the, the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Pause again. We were in chapter 22 earlier. In that, Paul actually says, on this, in this moment, he went into the temple in Jerusalem, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him again and told him, your life's in danger. You need to get out of here. And so, he got a vision from Jesus in Acts 22 that also gave him motivation to leave immediately. So, they, they look again at 30. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, my last point is preparation, a time of preparation. Well, what does that mean? Paul was preaching Jesus from the beginning of his conversion. So, it didn't take any time. If you've just become a Christian, tell, tell people. There's nothing to wait about there. But there was a time still of some training and preparation for Paul. So, just follow this. They take him out of Jerusalem. They take him to the coast, the Mediterranean Sea, big city, Caesarea, where Pontius Pilate, had, you know, he lived, they sent him by boat up north over 100 miles to his hometown of Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, near Syria. And then this is the strange part. Saul's life goes radio silence for about eight years, and we know almost nothing about what happens. For the next eight years, Saul writes no books of the Bible. He's not, he hasn't written any books of the Bible. He hasn't gone on any of his missionary journeys that we'll, Acts will talk about, his first, second, third missionary journey. None of that has happened. He has not been commissioned by the church in Antioch yet. He hasn't met many of the apostles yet. What was happening during those years? We get a couple tiny glimpses. Number one, Galatians 1, again, tells us that the, a whole, the whole time he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. Galatians, the end of Galatians 1 says that the people just, they didn't even know him well, but the people were hearing he is now preaching Jesus, the, the very Jesus he crucified. So he went on preaching in his hometown area. He probably helped plant some churches in that area, very likely. I could talk about that later in Acts, why we think that. But here's why I want to encourage you with this section of Paul's life. The eight silent years, as there, it's probably A.D. 37 to about A.D. 45, right in there, if we're guessing, it's somewhere close to that, A.D. 37 to A.D. 45, these eight silent years. Here's a couple other things we know about them. Almost certainly, remember Paul had the, the vision of the third heaven? 
When you do the math, he said it happened 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. You do the math, he's almost certainly living alone up here in Tarsus when this happened. Before any of his letters, any of his missionary journeys, he had that vision of the third heaven and the thorn in his side at that time. Also, 2 Corinthians 11, the chapter before that, describes Paul's beatings, his, you know, whipped 39 lashes, five times beaten with rods, shipwrecked. Some of that certainly happened during these years as well, these so-called silent years. So, how is this supposed to be any kind of encouragement to any of our lives? Well, we should not despise the so-called silent years in our lives, the years of preparation. Did Abraham experience long, painful years of silence before all that he wanted came to pass, waiting 25 years for the birth of Isaac, I believe? Did Joseph experience those preparatory years before God used him in a great way? Seven, it was 13 years before he was exalted out of prison to the right hand of the king? How about Moses? Remember in Exodus? We know the first 40 years, prince of Egypt, right? The last 40 years, in wandering with the people in the desert. But what about the middle 40 years? From age 40 to 80, he was working for his father-in-law, shepherding sheep in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Was God preparing Moses for great things in the future, but shaping and humbling his character? How about King David? Did David have some years of humility and silence? You know, he was anointed king when he was young. That's exciting. Did he go straight to the throne? No. He went back, by the way, to taking care of sheep by himself in the field. Okay, the time of Goliath came and went, but then the king Saul tried to kill David, and David spent years running from Saul, hiding in caves, wondering what was going to happen, trying his best to truly trust in the Lord's promises in the midst of horrible trials. Was God shaping David in those silent years, getting him ready for his time as king in Israel? Yes. And I just want to tell you that everybody in this room at different points in our life, go through these painful times of waiting on the Lord. And I'm telling you, these are some of the hardest years of life. Because so often, you know, whether maybe you're in college, I remember being in college and just wanting to be pastoring a church. I was like, I, I just want to go. Like, I, I can't do it yet, but I just want to get there. I don't want to wait another, whatever it ended up being, another 10 years before a church starts. I, I want to go. And God is, this, God said, no, I've got a plan for you. He's saying to me, from 18 to 28, there were 10 years for me where it was the Lord saying, not yet. I want to try to shape you. I want to try to work in you. I want this to be time of preparation. So, in the, you know, the Bible says, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. If you feel right now like you are living some small days, days that don't feel incredibly consequential to your life, I want you to know that just as God was shaping Paul and preparing him to write 13 New Testament books, three, actually probably four missionary journeys, and a heroic martyrdom, there was an eight-year period that we know almost nothing about where the Lord was at work shaping Saul into a great man who trusted in him deeply, knew Scripture intimately, and was able to evangelize effectively with his life in the years to come. So again, if you are in those periods I would ask you to think about this, be encouraged by this, and not despise the day of small things. So, wrapping up here, when you become a Christian, expect a radical personal transformation in your view and love for Jesus and in a new community of Christ followers. Number two, expect persecution from others who may have formerly been 
friends of yours. You don't look for it, you don't want it. You try to avoid that, but it may end up happening. And number three, don't despise the days of preparation as the Lord works in the silent years to shape our character and to make us more effective for His kingdom in the future that we have before us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the miracle of the new birth. The, the woman of the city who was a sinner, but a, a sinner in that way no more. Saul of Tarsus, breathing threats and murder against the church, becomes perhaps the greatest Christian in all of human history. God, I thank You for the grace it, that You have displayed in turning so many of the lives in this room and listening online, turning our lives around to, to make us passionate followers of the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that You would continue to give us grace to endure times of pushback and persecution, and give us grace to not despise the day of small things, but that we would invest in eternal realities, in God, the Word of God, and the souls of men as we are living through those more silent years of life, the blank spaces of life. Help us to be pouring ourselves out in acts of quiet service and love, and also be shaped in our love for You and our knowledge of Your Word. In light of all that we've talked about with Paul today, I'm going to reread another testimony of his, this time from the familiar passage of Philippians 3, and this is the Word of the Lord. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.